What made you decide to take the case even further, and what did you do then? I just had to exhaust any and all opinions on what happened to my children and to be heard in some arena, which I've never had that stage here in our own country. You must remember that when the Constitution was written, that women were regarded as property. The struggle for an Equal Rights Amendment traces back to 1923 when feminist Alice Paul wrote the words that became ERA. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. So as we march today, remember, forward together, backward never. If you could change one thing about the Constitution, what would it be? I would add an Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution. Today, the House of Representatives cleared a hurdle to make the Equal Rights Amendment the 28th Amendment to the Constitution. The House voted to remove a deadline for states to ratify the amendment, which would guarantee women the same legal rights as men. Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, human rights attorney, feminist, and advocate for the Equal Rights Amendment. And this is Ordinary Equality. So far, we've been focused on what's happened and what's happening here in the United States. We just celebrated International Women's Day, and today we're zooming out to take a more global perspective. The movement to expand the rights of all genders is not a uniquely American endeavor. In fact, we're behind on the quest for constitutional gender equity. The vast majority of countries have some sort of provision that looks awfully similar to the ERA. To learn more, I spoke with UCLA professor Jody Hyman. Overwhelmingly around the world, constitutions guarantee equal rights across sex or gender. So 85% of the world's constitutions guarantee this fundamental equal right. And I'll note here that we do look together at protections for equal rights across sex and across gender. Professor Hyman directs the World Policy Analysis Center. The center had researchers analyze every single constitution in the world. So there are 193 countries in the world that are part of the United Nations. Of those, all but five have constitutions. So 188 have constitutions, and the five that don't have constitutional-like documents, documents that, laws that have very long-term staying power. So we had at least two researchers read every single constitution in the world, we read them in their original language and in official translations, and they analyzed them. They analyzed them for equal rights across many dimensions, equal rights across sex and gender. If the two researchers reach different conclusions, then a larger team would review the entire constitution to reach consensus. When it comes to protections based on gender or sex, Jody and her team have found that globally constitutions have shifted significantly over time. Before 1970, 
only about half of constitutions that we have today that were adopted before 1970 guarantee equality across sex and gender, 54%. But if you look at recent constitutions, those adopted since 2000 in the past two decades, every single one guarantees equality across all sexes and genders. Now, of those it's also important to note that in the past two decades, old constitutions have gone back and said, we need to guarantee equality now. An example of that is Luxembourg, over 100 years old. Still, they went back, others have gone back, amended their constitution for this fundamental right. Some constitutions are easier to change than others. Altering the U.S. Constitution is comparatively very difficult. First of all, many more constitutions are written from scratch every decade than I think people realize. So there are a significant number of new constitutions each decade. But there also are scores amended every decade. So what about the ones who are amended there are a range of approaches to how difficult it is to amend a constitution. In the case of the United States, the U.S. is at the end of the spectrum where it is particularly difficult to amend the constitution. That having been said, it's exactly in areas like equal rights, across sex and across gender, where there's overwhelming consensus among American women and men that gender equality matters and should exist. That's exactly the kind of circumstance that should be able to get through the U.S. process for amendment and that, in fact, the Constitution was designed for. But for many reasons, some of which we've already gone into, that hasn't been the case. Despite broad-based agreement that we should have a gender equity clause, we don't. It's evident looking around the world that having an ERA could actually be a real game changer. In Spain, which does have sex and gender equality in the Constitution, they used these equal rights to remove penalties that existed for taking maternity leave. They also used these protections to ensure that there was equal pay for work of equal value, even in very gendered occupations. In Germany, they used equal rights in the constitution as a foundation for innovative parental leave policy which incentivized both fathers and mothers to take leave. So having a true guarantee of equal rights across sex and gender, it matters to women, men, all sexes, all genders. These equal rights protections have been used effectively around the world. In Nepal, the Constitution's gender equality provision was used for the basis of a new law prohibiting rape within marriages. 
In Zimbabwe and Tanzania, courts found that establishing lower ages of marriage for girls than for boys, basically allowing more child marriage for girls, was unconstitutional. Well, child marriage remains a problem in the United States, with recent studies showing tens of thousands of cases of child marriage, predominantly girls being married off young. So these other uses that have occurred in countries around the world are important for U.S. context as well. So the other countries with ERAs have used them in a bunch of different ways to protect women and girls. After carefully scrutinizing the constitutions of every country in the world, Jody and her colleagues have come to the conclusion that the U.S. has fallen behind. There is no doubt that when it first came out, as imperfect as it was, the U.S. Constitution was also innovative for the time, and it provided new rights for the period in history when it came out. But by now, the U.S. Constitution lags far behind many parts of the world. It lags behind in equal rights across sex and gender. It lags behind in terms of equal cross, equal rights across social class. 114 countries guarantee that. It lags behind terribly in our right to health currently being debated, even though 144 countries, three quarters of all countries, have a constitutional guarantee of the right to health. And we lag behind in a right to education. 160 countries have that right. It's time for us to catch up. If you want to find out more about this fascinating project and learn about more cases, go to advanceequality.org. Jody just published a book that's the result of a decade-long research project called Advancing Equality, How Constitutional Rights Can Make a Difference Worldwide. You can download cases, maps, and the entire book all for free online. So the U.S. Constitution was once on the cutting edge. To this day, many constitutions are modeled after ours. But even some U.S. officials admit we're not the best out there. The U.S. has encouraged other countries writing new constitutions, like Afghanistan and Iraq, to include gender provisions. I spoke about comparative constitutional law with Julie Sook, Dean for Master's Programs and Professor of Sociology, Political Science, and Liberal Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I first learned about Julie through an article she wrote entitled an Equal Rights Amendment for the 21st Century, Bringing Global Constitutionalism Home. Her thesis in that article has a lot to do with the two L's we spoke about last episode, legislation and litigation. The central argument that I make 
is that there is a role that a 21st century equal rights amendment can play in the U.S. Constitution. And it's different, perhaps, from the role that was envisioned in 1923 when the ERA was formally introduced in Congress, although arguably it had a decades-long history of brewing dating back to Susan B. Anthony's engagement with the original 14th Amendment. But the argument that I make uh, is that there is a role that the Equal Rights Amendment can play, and that's in promoting real equality for men and women uh, and in promoting a vision of equality that has to be carried out by multiple actors, including legislatures at both the federal and state level, and not only by judges. Turns out the RBG and the U.S.-based women's movement weren't alone in pushing a two-pronged strategy. People around the world have implemented legislation and litigation to establish more equitable government and cultural systems. Julie particularly saw that in her study of Europe. So a lot of the work that I do on the ERA I've come into by looking at the history of gender equality amendments in the European context. And in France and Germany and Italy, after World War I and World War II, those 20th century constitutions included clauses that guaranteed equality between men and women or equal rights between men and women. And despite the fact that those clauses were there, there were, in the late 20th century, like in the 1980s, there were efforts to write laws that would more strongly promote women's equality. So, for example, in civil service jobs where women were underrepresented in Germany, they would require that you give preference to women in the hiring for those civil service jobs. And then the question came up, can you give a preference to women? Does that violate the principle of equality in the Constitution or not? Right? And in France, the law that was passed in the 1980s uh, was a law that said that because there was a severe underrepresentation of women in parliament in France, and of course in the United States, we still have an underrepresentation of women in Congress and in most state legislatures. So they wrote a law that said that uh, political parties had to have uh, equal numbers of men and women uh, as candidates on their party lists. And uh, the Constitutional Court struck that down in France and said that it went against the guarantee of equality in the Declaration of Rights of Man. And it was in reaction to that that we got an amendment in 1999 in France uh, that said that the law shall promote equal access by men and women to the electoral mandate and to elected positions, right? Uh, In Germany in 1994, and this was in part part of a larger project of reform connected to German reunification, uh, they wrote an amendment. So in addition to an existing clause that said men and women shall have equal rights, they added a clause that said that the law shall promote the actual implementation of equal rights uh, and eradicate disadvantages that now exist. And so that amendment in Germany made it very clear, as did the 1999 amendment in France, that the original meaning of equality or the meaning of equality in the Constitution did not simply mean formal equality, treat men and women the same. It meant equality under the law or equal rights must have some relationship to real equality. And it was actually the legislature's job under the Constitution uh, to promote actual equality uh, and to address any of the problems that are preventing real equality on the ground. Let's just pause on that point for a second. In France and Germany, the legislatures not only agreed and passed amendments declaring equality, they also added teeth to those amendments by determining it was the legislature's job, 
to proactively push for greater equity. When the French court suggested certain actions weren't covered by the existing amendment, the legislators actually passed more sweeping measures. In France, once you get the amendment in 1999, and then later you get another amendment in 2008, because what happened in the intervening decade was that the legislature actually tried to write even broader laws. So in addition to gender quotas on electoral lists, the legislature in the 2000s wrote laws that required gender balance on corporate boards of directors of publicly traded companies. And the Constitutional Court struck that down, saying, well, that 99 amendment really only talks about elected office. So then they amended again in 2008. And now the provision reads uh, that the law shall promote equal access by women and men to positions of professional and social responsibility. Right? So that makes it really clear. And then, of course, after that, the legislature passed another law a few years later uh, that uh, imposed gender balance rules on publicly traded companies. And the Constitutional Court didn't strike it down at that point because there was an amendment that created a compass uh, in some ways for the legislature. Now, before we get too far celebrating the accomplishments of other countries writ large, it's important to note that not all countries with gender equity provisions are equal. In many places with ERA-similar clauses, women's freedom is restricted. Jamia Wilson, director and publisher of the Feminist Press, has lived in a country like that. Saudi Arabia is often used as an example of a country with a gender provision where women lack basic autonomy. It always says something about a country, no matter what, around um, the feminists leading it. And Saudi Arabia, some of the most fierce, determined feminists I've met have come from there. I think there's something about when you are from a place where the patriarchy is less self-conscious and it uses a megaphone to shout about itself that actually naming those issues and addressing them um, can somehow be less of a gaslight dance than it is when people believe that everyone's free and people, even the people who are internally oppressed and may not realize <laughs> that they lack power um, and enforcing the idea of patriarchy not existing when it's very much baked into the pie of the United States of America. So for me, there were many, many human rights atrocities and many things about the gender apartheid that I experienced in Saudi Arabia that uh, I don't want to see replicated here. But what I will say is there's a nuanced conversation about how we talk about that because I've so I've been written off by people who are opponents of the ERA and opponents of reproductive justice in this country telling me to go to places like Saudi Arabia and then get something to complain about. And then not knowing how to respond when I'll say, oh, I, I went there and actually lived there for over a decade. But then also to say to them that, did you know Saudi Arabia actually has anti-street harassment laws? Do we have those here? No. <laughs> and so I think that there's also this idea in this country that people have a sense of a moral superiority. Um, and that's something that we really need to dismantle. You know, Saudi banks practice Islamic law. And so they have much more radical viewpoints about interest. And when I think about in student that and student loans and how they plague women and how the ERA could help with that, 
Um, I think that the conversation is a lot more nuanced, and I think that um, we can acknowledge what needs to change in places like Saudi Arabia without also sort of exonerating ourselves from the real problems that we're facing here. And it's something that I love to talk about. So thanks for the opportunity to discuss it because I am often surprised at how little people really know about countries like Saudi Arabia to feel like there are authorities on them. Having a gender provision in the Constitution enables legislatures and judiciaries to create stronger foundations for progress. And in many cases, they have been used to make them better. Here in the U.S., we have an opportunity to look at those positive examples and learn something. Here's Julie Sook again. We have to take inspiration from what has actually been been done in other countries. But of course, that's very difficult to do that because there are things that are very distinctive about the culture and politics of this country that make it hard. Uh, And of course, and I, I don't mean to suggest that just because one country does it, we can easily just transplant it here. Uh, But I think that we should take inspiration and engage all of our powers of translation. Other countries have used the strategies we seek to employ to enact change. As a reminder, constitutional provisions can serve as instruments to get things done, both through the courts and through Congress. But you mentioned the Section 2 of the Equal Rights Amendment, which would give Congress the power to enforce the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, And that power is important because we have at some moments in our constitutional history had a court that is willing to strike down certain laws uh, that have been adopted by Congress uh, to promote gender equality. Uh, One example is the Violence Against Women Act. This was a statute in the 90s that Congress passed that would have given a civil rights remedy uh, to victims of gender-motivated violence. And the Supreme Court struck that down in 2000, claiming that it was not a valid exercise of Congress's power to enforce the Equal Protection Clause, uh, nor was it a valid exercise of Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. We have a lot of conflicts of rights in the United States. So you can imagine uh, a law that's intended to promote women uh, and and to address women's disadvantage as being challenged either under the Equal Protection Clause. Sometimes laws that promote uh, women might even be challenged under the First Amendment, uh, the religion clauses of the First Amendment. So there are many situations in which you can see, you know, we're, we're very litigious, uh, and you could see many situations in which a legislature tries uh, to uh, to promote actual equality for men and women. And uh, in such situations, if someone were to challenge that statute, uh, Section 2 of the ERA would make it possible uh, and for a judge to sustain that law. Without the ERA, women in the U.S. are on weaker judicial ground than in other countries, and in international courts. After the break, we'll talk about a woman who experienced that firsthand. We'll be right back. So you may remember a few weeks ago when I told you about ordering a new bra from Third Love. Well, update, that bra got stolen by my girlfriend. (laughs) She liked it so much that she never gave it back, and I had to order another bra on Third Love, which I love. 
The great thing about Third Love is it's really easy to look on their website and find the right size for you. It's also really easy to return or exchange. They have no tags, it's really easy to adjust, and they're just really comfortable. Also really important to me is that Third Love donates all of their gently used returned bras to women in need, supporting charities in their local San Francisco area and all across the United States. So when you give, it also is a way to give back. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now, they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com equality to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com equality for 15% off today. Women in the U.S. are at a legal disadvantage in our own country and internationally. Jessica Lenahan found that out firsthand. So in 1999, when my children were abducted by their father, Simon Gonzalez, we were in the middle of a divorce, and he knew the way to punish me was through my children. And he did it very well when he put my children in danger by abducting them. While she was going through a divorce, Jessica got a permanent restraining order against her abusive husband due to domestic violence. But the police refused to enforce it. He abducted their three daughters, Leslie, Catherine, and Rebecca. And while Jessica repeatedly called the police begging them to enforce the restraining order, they refused. They continually ignored her pleas. Her husband murdered all three of her daughters and died himself in a shootout with the police. After this heartbreaking tragedy, Jessica sued the town's police force for failing to enforce their own restraining order, and the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. It's always an eternity to wait for any decision. It could be weeks, it could be months, it could be years. But any time you hope for something better and it comes back less than, we've got no control over that, which is the worst feeling in the world. Finally, after years in court and two years waiting for the Supreme Court, Jessica received the court's decision. She lost the case. So when you heard, what, what, how did you feel when you heard the decision of the Supreme Court? Like my kids were killed all over again. Like there was absolutely no justice whatsoever. It wasn't just the protective orders, restraining orders being taken off the table and the fact that they wouldn't be enforced because, in my experience, there was no good outcome anyway. But that the states that it was working for were now disabled. And I had to disassociate because I had nothing to do with that. It was such a loss. And... But it was a, a bigger loss because that meant life was going to still be lost under the same circumstances. Which just, that was, it was like somebody sucker punched me for two years. Like it, that feeling of being gut punched like that so violently never went away. 
We all learn in school that the Supreme Court is the highest legal authority in the land. But when it decided against Jessica, she didn't give up, even then. She looked beyond our borders to international law. She took her case to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. So after the Supreme Court, you decided to um, take it to the Inter-American Commission. Did you know what the Inter-American Commission is, and how did you... It was very new to the United States. It was kind of in its infancy at that time. There was no promise there. I think what was most liberating was that it's a tribunal, excuse me, that allowed me to have a voice about my own life and what actually transpired. And for our country not to take those decisions and recommendations seriously and implement them is really disheartening. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights is a human rights body that adjudicates decisions against countries that have signed the Inter-American Convention. One way to think about the Inter-American system is like a small, regional UN just for the Western Hemisphere. It's based in Washington, D.C., and the U.S. played a major role in its formation. We have never ratified the American Convention. Sound familiar? But we still have an obligation to uphold the rights it protects. When a country violates basic human rights, like those outlined in the American Convention, a person can take a case against a country. Jessica Lenahan did just that. In 2011, the Inter-American Commission found the U.S. guilty of human rights violations against Jessica and her children. The commission said that the failure of the United States to adequately organize its state structure to protect Jessica's daughters from domestic violence was discriminatory and constituted a violation of their right to life. Finally, adding the ERA to our Constitution wouldn't immediately fix what happened to Jessica. What it would do is create an infrastructure for such change moving forward. Here's Julie Sook again. I think a lot of constitutional change by its nature is transgenerational. I mean, the 14th Amendment was sitting around for a long time before it was used to strike down <laughs> racial segregation. And, and I think today we think that one of the greatest achievements of the 14th Amendment is that it invalidates racial segregation in our public institutions. Uh, And it is very interesting that probably the most important thing that the 14th Amendment does uh, was not something that we got when the 14th Amendment was ratified. Uh, It took almost 100 years before we got from the ratification of the 14th Amendment uh, to a real vehicle for striking down Jim Crow. Uh, I guess this is difficult to say, but I think if we get the ERA today, uh, I think I can envision a future Uh, in which maybe not tomorrow, uh, but possibly in my lifetime, hopefully in my lifetime, we will actually have a different constitutional culture, uh, which might actually mean different constitutional law. The ERA could usher in a new wave of better judicial interpretation and new laws to promote the rights of women. We could improve our protections of victims of domestic violence right here at home. Here's Professor Jody Hyman again. I think there are two large reasons why it's so important for the U.S. to have an equal rights amendment. 
we've talked about one. We've talked about the powerful, pragmatic reasons, the protections it can give against violence, the improvements it can mean for equal pay, which, by the way, the equal economic gains would contribute to more than a $4 trillion growth in U.S. GDP. This matters to everyone. But beyond the very practical applied reasons that this could result in greater equality across sex and gender that would benefit girls, boys, men, women, all sexes, all genders, there's a powerful normative measure. We should be telling every child in the country, we should be saying loudly and constitution is our most vocal way to say it, that each child matters equally, that each child is going to truly have an equal opportunity in this country, and that we value every child equally. This is our way of saying it. We started off this episode by talking about International Women's Day and our place on the global stage. The ERA would help bring American women equality, but it would also help us become better global citizens and provide a path to ratify other important treaties, like the most important women's rights treaty, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, or CEDA. It's often referred to as the International Women's Bill of Rights. Remember all those countries Jody was talking about at the top of the show? The U.S. is one of only six countries in the world that has not ratified CEDA. Those countries are the United States, Iran, Somalia, Sudan, Tonga, Palau, and the Holy See, which is the Vatican and technically a country, but has no women citizens. That's it. In order for us to be better and not be an example in a tiny handful of countries that won't ratify the International Women's Bill of Rights, we must first guarantee equal rights at home. In fact, CEDAW requires a gender provision be put in each country's constitution. That's part of the reason so many have. We are behind in the U.S., but that doesn't have to be the case. We're closer than ever to putting our country on par with others around the world that have actively signaled they believe in the legal equality of all genders. All of the U.S. states necessary have ratified the ERA. Now, the biggest hurdle is a pesky deadline. Next time on Ordinary Equality, we're talking about why that deadline was put in in the first place why we might be able to banish it, and how the most recent amendment finangled its way into the Constitution over 200 years after it was written. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production, edited and produced by Liz Smith, executive produced by Jenny Kaplan, with support from Edie Allard and Louisa Garbowit. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Wardell. Special thanks to my employer, Equality Now, an international human rights organization that works to protect and promote the rights of women and girls around the world. To learn more about what you can do to support the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, check out equalitynow.org ERA. To follow along our journey, find us on Twitter at Ord Equality. 
O-R-D, equality. If you like our show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Wonder Media Network is a women-led podcasting company dedicated to lifting up underrepresented voices based in New York City. There's a lot of competition to be the first headline or Google result. If you want to go deeper, try on Second Thought. It's a weekly podcast from Georgia Public Broadcasting, hosted by me, Virginia Prescott. We talk with innovative thinkers, hip-hop legends, pecan farmers, and agents of change who just may make you rethink what it means to be second. Subscribe to On Second Thought for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.